Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. The 2018 midterm elections will set the stage for how the Trump administration will govern during the balance of the term and impact legislative and regulatory initiatives. Listen in as corporate department chair Mike King moderates a bipartisan discussion with Brownstein shareholder Greg Berger, strategic advisor Barry Jackson, and policy director Drew Littman. They provide insight on hot topics that could impact businesses following the midterms, including taxation of private equity at the state level, Medicare for all, the deficit, antitrust, and infrastructure, as well as the potential for increased privacy laws at the federal level. My name's Mike King. I'm the head of the corporate department here at Brownstein Hyatt-Farber-Schreck, and uh, I'm probably the least important person on this panel as the moderator uh, to my left, but certainly not to my political left, is Barry Jackson. That never gets old. Regarded as one of Washington's most dedicated strategic advisors, uh, brings a steadfast work ethic, including traveling out here for this panel for how many years running? At least five. Uh, So thank you, Barry. Uh, He served as chief of staff for the Speaker of the House, John Boehner, between 2010 and 2012, which picks up the passage of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, Real vital moment uh, to our discussions here as well as in American history. And uh, he was Speaker Boehner's first chief of staff from 91 to 2001. Uh, During that time, he was the executive director of the House Republican Conference during Speaker Boehner's tenure as chairman. Uh, and Speaker Boehner describes Barry as one of the most results-oriented professionals I've ever had the privilege of working with. Uh, prior to his return to Speaker Boehner's office, Barry served from 2001 to 2009 in the White House of President George W. Bush as the first director of the newly created Office of Strategic Initiatives, completed his service to the White House as assistant to the President for Strategic Initiatives and External Affairs. The New York Times called Barry one of the most influential figures in Washington and a force in Republican politics for more than 20 years. Uh, Drew Littman, to Barry's left, both literally and figuratively, (laughs) was a top aide to Barbara Boxer in the House and Senate, served as Al Franken's chief of staff, and was appointed senior counselor to President Obama's HHS Secretary uh, Sylvia Burwell. Well, in the private sector, he's advised senators and their staff extensively and has undertaken uh, all manner of cool pro bono projects. This actually says that. Um, Like running then-Mayor Cory Booker's Senate transition and playing Senator Mark Warner's 2014 opponent, Ed Gillespie, in a series of mock debates. So he's well-equipped for this. And uh, we're going to hope the fur doesn't fly too much between these two gentlemen. Now, to my far left, and that may be true of Mr. Berger, uh, Greg Berger, uh, who heads up our tax practice here at Brownstein, he spent uh, more time in Washington, D.C., up on the Hill with tax reform in November, December. Uh, I I don't know if he ever got to uh, visit his actual home. Uh, The Capitol became his home, and uh, he is expert in tax reform uh, and implementation of it. Uh, if anyone is, I know we're still trying to figure out what was passed. So um, with that backdrop, uh, we're going to jump right in and I-, I think stipulate to one thing. So, you know, two weeks ago, a lot of people were yelling at one another and that was sort of taking over broadcast news. Uh, we're not here to do that. Uh, what we are here to do is provide you with insights on the climate for business. 
uh, for your business, for your client's business over the next election cycle, as well as the one following that, uh, the presidential to follow. And so what may come of all this in terms of policy across the board from healthcare to infrastructure to banking, antitrust enforcement environment. So uh, we're going to have a lot of fun, but we're going to be a lot more substantive than some of the yelling and screaming and tweeting that you get on TV these days. Uh, so with that backdrop, uh, I will throw open to the panel uh, any predictions for the upcoming cycle and what that will mean for the climate for doing business. You're on offense, so you go. <laughs> I'm on offense. Okay, predictions for the cycle. I would predict that Democrats will flip the House, pick up about 40 seats, which is actually the average for the opposing party in a first-term, midterm with a president with an approval rating under 50%. So it's actually, it sounds, 40 seats is a lot, but it's a pretty orthodox prediction. I would predict in the Senate, Republicans increase their margin slightly, increase their majority slightly. There's virtually no path to a majority for Democrats uh, in the Senate. That's a better place from my point of view than we were in the morning after Election Day. I was despondent, of course, and I looked at what the if there would be relief in the 2018 cycle, Senate cycle, and I saw that there would be 10 Senate Democrats running in states Trump won when the numbers came in. Five Senate Democrats are running in states that Trump won by 19 points or more. One's running in a state that he won by more than 40 points. There's only one Republican in the Senate running in a state that Hillary ran in. So, so, so that's the way I think it'll, it'll break down. And then the question is, can President Trump triangulate a Democratic House and a Republican Senate? Um, there are so many variables, and I think we can, we can get to a whole lot of them in the course of the conversation. Uh, but we would be looking at infrastructure, where a tough decision would be, uh, have to be made about how to fund it, maybe prescription drug pricing. And I think over the longer term, if you want a long-shot issue, it might be uh, carbon pricing or some kind of carbon tax somewhere down the road, not immediately, as something Democrats and Republicans can work on. I know Democrats and Republicans are working together on issues like figuring out the gig economy, where does it need to be regulated, what protections do workers need, how can it be made smoother for big companies. So there are some bipartisan issues. So this cool slide uh, hits what Drew was just talking about. Uh, just how many uh, D's are running in states that Trump won. Uh, so, you know, as promised, those of you who came to sit down close to us are getting a better view. But uh, it, it is a daunting prospect for uh, those folks on the D side of the aisle having to run in Trump states. Uh, Barry, your predictions, and then what does that mean for policy? So, um, uh I don't disagree with a lot of what, what Drew said, especially on the Senate side. <laughs> um, but on the House side, I, I have a, a slightly different perspective, which in 1994, I ran the contract with America where Republicans took advantage of a wave, won the House. 2010, what we called the, uh, well, I forget what, a pledge for America or something like that. Uh, but... Uh, ran that campaign in 2010, wave election, where we took back the House. And I sat in the White House overseeing political affairs in 2006, wave election where the Democrats took over. Here's the thing about wave elections, and, and, and Drew, I think, smartly did not say this was a wave election. It, it's tracking pretty close to what a standard midterm, um, what you 
you would think about. The thing about a wave election is you've got a clearly identifiable issue which cuts across every place and everyone the same way. So if you think about in 94, Bill Clinton, it was you're not doing what you said you were going to do. You did Hillary Care or tried to. You raised taxes. Don't ask, don't tell. That's not what you promised. And if you think about in 2006, Iraq War, we're just tired of you guys. You're not succeeding. It was Republican, Democrat. And in 2010, it was Obamacare full on. This cycle... Trump's everywhere. Trump defines everything. But it cuts differently in different issue sets wherever you go. So that's why I don't see this as a a wave. Um, I think this is going to be fought hand-to-hand combat, and and you all sitting here in Denver are ground zero when you think about Mike Kaufman's race. Um, That is playing out in about 50 other districts around the country. And what's happening is some places – Demographics are making a difference. Some place money's making a difference. Some place issues. So t- if I had to place my bet today, I think the House goes Democrat, but I think it's probably, or Democratic, I think it's probably like three, four seats is all. I don't see this big wave coming. But I've also, the last thing I'll say, I've never seen an environment as volatile as this. I've never seen the amount of money that... People who have no business having that much money in their campaign accounts and no idea knowing how to spend it. I've never seen issue sets just flip back and forth. And I have never seen a president with such command over earned media who can day to day just turn on a dime and make everybody just freak out and go running and talking about something different. So my prediction is predicated on God only knows what's going to happen in the next three weeks. But that's where I think we are today. All right. So uh, with that caveat, uh, Drew, if your version comes to pass and there's a wave uh, of D's in the House, but Senate is held by the Republicans, uh, what's on the Democratic wish list in the House? And then how attainable is all that? So if, we, if you want to click over to our committee slide what you see here, small print, but I'll, I'll direct you to some of the highlights. What you see here is the product of some internal work at Brownstein. Uh, senior Democrats, including one guy who until recently was uh, Nancy Pelosi's chief of staff, got together. We took six key committees, and we tried to map out the committee agendas if, if Democrats take over the House. In one case— We actually weren't really sure what to put down. We contacted the guy who will be the staff director of that particular committee. He told us what will be on the top of the agenda. So we have some pretty good sources to try and figure out this sort of thing. And I'll just draw your attention to a couple of things to give you some of the flavor. Happy to talk about this more when there are questions. Oversight will dominate most of the committees. It has to. It doesn't matter whether the chairman likes or doesn't like Trump relatively. There's still plenty to look at. Um, A lot of funny stuff with cabinet secretaries, travel and other costs. There's going to be oversight. Um, There's going to be conventional legislative work, updates on legislation. Um, 
there's going to be stuff, some stuff that's not terribly partisan. Maybe Democrats will try and make drug pricing legislation partisan, top middle energy and commerce. But, but there's bipartisan interest in that. Um, modernizing antitrust policies, Democrats have talked about that, uh, uh, and Republicans have as well. Um, some of the other stuff you could see is plainly partisan. Some of it can be legislative. Under natural resources, the, you see at the bottom, the president shrunk to national monuments. That's highly unusual, if not unprecedented. Presidents don't usually make those national monuments smaller. So the Natural Resources Committee could decide we'll protect them, we'll make them into national parks. That's legislative. Or they can decide the president didn't follow the proper procedure to do this. He did it arbitrarily. Let's turn this into an oversight hearing. One very important thing to know about Congress, many years ago I was the staff director of an oversight subcommittee and got this drilled into my head. Democratic uh, chair, Republican president. Congress's subpoena power, granted in the Constitution, is absolute. Lawyers in the room, this is a tough concept to grapple with. For example, attorney-client privilege is not a defense if you want to resist a congressional subpoena. It's not recognized by Congress. Attorney-client privilege isn't really a constitutional doctrine. You'd need a countervailing constitutional right to resist a congressional subpoena. You may have read in the paper some speculation about how Democrats, what law they would invoke to get President Trump's tax returns. I don't believe they need to invoke a statute at all. They can simply subpoena the tax returns. So, so you could see some very aggressive use of the subpoena. Maxine Waters will chair the uh, congresswoman from California who Trump has attacked, will chair the Financial Services Committee. She's actually more uh, industry-friendly than you might imagine, and she's been around a long time. But Trump has gone after her personally. She could decide to hold an oversight hearing on, for example— Money laundering through the purchase of condominiums for all cash by Russian oligarchs through shell companies. And she can subpoena records. Um, there, there's no it, it's really just a question of energy level and and willing to, to fight it out. So there's lots of room for creativity. You'll see some Democratic presidential platform items like Medicare for all will get played out in these committees. But again, there are areas where Democrats and Republicans can work together. So, let me, so um, I'll give you a perspective, a little perspective on this, too. So Drew's right about the, the oversight will dominate, um, and he is also correct about the unquestioned authority of Congress. I, I, uh, even though I did White House and Congress, I am more proud of my Article I service because the Founding Fathers had it correct in that light. But from experience— <clears throat> One, if you think about Republican control, especially during President Obama's administration, and how often Republicans went chasing down rabbit holes that the American people have already decided don't care. And um, a, a lot of the things that Drew talked about, so tax returns or you know going after Russian oligarch things, the risk reward ratio is something that if you assume Nancy Pelosi is going to take the speaker's gavel again, she's going to have to wrestle with this. She, she's not new to the rodeo, and she understands what overreach can be here. 
she's got to be able to prove that, okay, we, we got back this gavel. You can trust us. Don't pay any attention to the crazies on the left and the mob stuff. We can be responsible with this. And that's a tough thing because even though my view is Democrats have more discipline over their caucus than Republicans do over their conference, she's going to have a bunch of young whippersnappers, guns a-blazing coming in. And how does she manage, manage that? And I know from experience— Boehner didn't manage it very well. You know, he had a bunch of Daryl Issa types that were out there sending letters off to the president and, you know, making silly allegations without having his facts down. Um, Paul Ryan has dealt with the same thing. Um, So that's the one thing that I would add to Drew's outline of what what could happen going forward. And, And I think that's where in the White House what President Trump and his team are counting on, the the Democrats will overreach and be off in la-la land. So a question for the panel. Uh, how much can be accomplished on issues where there's common ground? So if uh, Barry's scenario of uh, Nancy Pelosi feeling the, the burdens of leadership and having to keep uh, the folks with agendas, a number of whom have run against her actively, uh, can keep them in line, actually accomplish some things, and we'll get to tax reform and any technical corrections, Greg, that are necessary and, and where that's headed. Uh, but can they find common ground on key issues like drug pricing? Well, yeah, so um, at the macro level, this, um, those of you who tend to go to the right, don't hold this against me. I adore Nancy Pelosi. I have a huge amount of respect for her because she's a professional at this. She knows how to make deals. Um, I've watched her do it under President Obama, and I've watched her do it under President Trump. And she does it sometimes when she doesn't want to do it. So she has the ability to come together and find what that common ground is. But let's not kid ourselves. Politics will dominate in this. And if... The president decides it's in his interest to find some kind of drug pricing thing, which, by the way, if you pay attention to that issue, Alex Azar has been out there for the past, you know, six weeks thumping away on stuff. Pretty clear the president's sensitive to this. He ran on it. He talked about it. So there's possibilities that you could find that common ground as long as there's not overreach. But there's other things where... You know, we like to talk about things being bipartisan, but other than identifying we have an issue to solve or address, the path towards solving it takes us in divergent paths, and that's where the politics will play into this. And so infrastructure is a classic. You will not find a single member of Congress, you won't find a single member of the administration go, we ought to be able to fix this. This is number one challenge. Well, why is it that we're 10 years on and we still don't have a fix? We do these patchwork highway bills and FAA bills because nobody knows how to fund it. Nobody knows what the proper balance is between state and federal. And frankly, nobody knows what the transportation system is going to look like. It's evolving so fast they're afraid to get themselves out front on this. Just a couple of quick observations, and, and, and I certainly agree with uh, – uh, Barry's analysis, but just to add a couple of things. The last two years have been unprecedented politically in a lot of ways. 
But get ready. The Democratic presidential race will start earlier than it ever has before, and it'll be more wide open. We're working on a new memo on the presidential candidates. If you give me your card, just write Dems 2020. I'll make sure you get it right after Election Day. But in the early version that we did, I have 30 candidates, 30 legitimate candidates. Um, Two from here in Colorado. (laughs) There you go. Um, What has changed very dramatically is that thanks to online fundraising, if you think about a presidential race or campaign in business terms, barriers to entry are lower than they ever have been. And there's no... We don't have a Democratic administration. We don't have a vice president coming out or some other obvious – someone who's obviously carrying the torch. It really is a wide-open field. There really are 30 candidates. And before you dismiss any of them, and some of them – you know, my colleagues laugh because they see I put the names up on a whiteboard and someone will walk into my office and say, Avenatti, and smack themselves on the forehead and just walk back out. What can I tell you, man? If he wants to raise – if he wants to run in Iowa and New Hampshire, the cost isn't very great. Can he raise a million dollars online? Yeah, probably by next Tuesday. Okay, he can because there are enough people who follow him on social media. If you have a distinct enough social media presence, you can raise the money to run for president, even though anyone with any sense would say this person should not be running for president. You know, Donald Trump did not have much of a conventional fundraising operation, but I think the more vivid example is Bernie Sanders. To my knowledge, he did not hold fundraising events I never got, I get called for money for everybody, you know, House Challengers in Colorado, Nevada yesterday. Everybody calls me and asks for money. I'm on a lot of lists. No one asked for money for Bernie Sanders. He, I work for Al Franken. No one asked me to give it, write a check to Bernie Sanders. Didn't ask anybody to write a check. They just send out emails. Money comes in. Beto O'Rourke, we saw, raised $30 million in a quarter. In a quarter. I mean, he's not even a – that race isn't even a toss-up. He's really an underdog in that race. But, but you can reach out to people online if you've got the right profile. So like it or not, there really could be 30 candidates for president, certainly more than 20 when Democrats get started. Republicans had 17. I think uh, they already are engaging. And again, we'll, we'll explain this if, if you see our memo. We're, we're tracking people's trips to Iowa. We're tracking their book publications. People are way out there in terms of laying the groundwork for presidential campaigns. Congressman John Delaney up in, uh, he's on the air already. Yeah. Um, that is going to affect decisions that get made on the Hill. It's going to affect the, the politics, as Barry suggested, because there's going to be pressure from presidential campaigns. Right. And, just, and if you think about this, you know, how quickly on, on the progressive side, I won't say the Democratic side, but the progressive side, Medicare for all is now a litmus test. Whereas before, what? Government take over health care? No, that's uh, 100 miles away. Not doing that. And that's what Drew is talking about. The, the power that these presidential wannabes will have, and you think about assuming Schumer and Pelosi are still there leading, they're going to have to try to balance that. Because at the end of the day, whether it's a presidential year or it's an off year, if you're a House person or a Senate person, what you care about is the House and Senate first. And so whether it, it's Kevin McCarthy or Steve Scalise or Nancy Pelosi or somebody else, the end of the day, what they're going to care about is protecting their members and navigating them through this presidential field. So uh, let's go with Medicare for all for a minute uh, and, and get down to brass tacks. Uh, 
the current system depends on a cost shift. Uh, so private pay subsidizes Medicare pay, and that, that's just factual. Uh, how, in fact, do the Medicare for all folks intend to pay for it, uh, and how do they actually follow through on you know, that, that litmus test? That's a Greg. Whose taxes are you raising, Greg? Well, well it's, it's, it, you know, the, the only reason it may not be a Greg is because there is actually no plan to pay for it. So there's no need for, for Greg's level. That's of a Barry then. <laughs> but, but if you read, so Bernie Sanders introduced the bill that, that Barry alluded to, and all of the Democrats in the Senate who are likely to run for president signed on that first day as co-sponsors, except Amy Klobuchar, which is interesting in terms of her own branding. But what's frustrating, if not infuriating, about the bill is it's a statement. It's like an aspirational. It's like a two-page aspirational statement. It's not the Affordable Care Act. It's not any kind of serious health care bill. It's a a talking point in a debate. And and Senator Sanders is not going to fill in those details. He's made it quite clear. Um, so he doesn't have a financing mechanism that he contemplates. And I know this is frustrating for people, for professionals, but I agree with Barry, again, except for a Klobuchar who wants to stand out. Support for Medicare for all or something very much like it, you can consider that the table stakes for a Democrat to run for president. If you can't ante up Medicare for all or some other form of universal coverage, you can't run for president. Well, that's profound given the the absolute lack of a way to pay for it. And maybe I'm a, a government nerd or Mr. Smith goes to Washington, which is out in theaters this week, by the way. <laughs> Jimmy Stewart. Uh, so I remember the profound disappointment when, in 2010, Republicans ran against the Affordable Care Act uh, and were swept into office. And the people who'd voted, donated, were profoundly disappointed that the ACA wasn't immediately rolled back. Right. And I, I, don't, I don't know what it is, but the expectations management around what can and can't be done, we seem to have, have lost that. Yeah, that's, that, that's a perpetual, that expectations management is a perpetual problem. I will say one thing, if you, if you glance again, if you can see it, ways and means, uh, under ways and means, um, I, I listed Medicare for All there. I imagine that what they'll do if they hold hearings on Medicare for All is they will talk about um, every tax break that was in the Job Creation and Tax Act of 2017, the Republican bill that passed, and they'll talk about rolling back every one of those tax breaks to pay for health care stuff, not in the realistic expectation that that will happen, but as a way of acting like they have a plan to fund Medicare for All, A, and B, simply attacking the Republican bill. So, right. and, and if you think about this, so what I said about, you, want to get in? No. you know, the poor <laughs> leader, Democratic leadership in the Congress having to navigate this. So if you buy the zeitgeist today in the, it, on the House side that where the Democrats are going to pick up seats or places like Mike Kaufman's district where you've got you know, middle of the road, independent, highly educated, suburban types. Medicare for all is not part of that campaign. And that candidate profile right now, if those are the men and women that get elected and bring a Democratic majority, Nancy's going to have to say, uh, wow, I really don't want to have my newly elected boys and girls that got us the majority 
having to cast a vote, which the Democrats will then club them to death on over the course of the next two years. Ha ha, we told you they actually were liberals, radicals. And so that's why on a lot of these issues that are easy to define politically and where you could even in some cases, so like prescription drugs, where you could say what well, seems like you could find some common ground in these next two years. And if 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 it's a Democratic House and with oversight going on, it becomes more and more difficult to see any kind of big legislation moving because everybody will put it in the context of the next election. Can, can I detour just a tiny bit because Mike Kaufman's name came up a bit? I've met Congressman Kaufman, and even though I am quite liberal and, and, and he's not, he's an impressive guy, very much in tune with his district, um, very eloquent talking about immigration and practical problems that immigrants in his district face. The Trump administration today, I believe, has of the senior political appointments jobs in the executive branch, something like 145 of them are unfilled. If a bunch of Republican House members who have been getting Democratic votes for years, those are the ones in the marginal districts, suburbs mostly, most likely to lose Barbara Comstock in Virginia. If a bunch of them are out of work after Election Day, I would advise if I worked for Donald Trump, I would say we got to find jobs for these people. We got to put them in the White House. We got to put them in agencies. You put my coffin somewhere at Homeland Security. He doesn't have to run the place. But these are Republicans who have been figuring out for years how to win Democratic votes, how to talk to Democrats in their district. And there's not enough of that in the administration. Trump pulled in people from Congress, but mostly from very, you know, like Jeff Sessions. Uh, Mick Mulvaney, folks from very red states, getting people from swing districts in the mix advising, I think would be extremely helpful. Very likelihood of that? Um, Drew's 100% spot on. Personnel is policy. The challenge is um, the president's track record on appointing anybody who may have said something critical of him. Not not real great. And and you know and and it's it's a thing for for me painfully watching guys like Kaufman and, and Barbara and these people navigate through this because they know the power of the president with our base and you can't win in an election without the base. Everybody's talking about, oh, you're trying to make this a base election. Well, duh. The Democrats want their base turnout. Republicans want their base turnout, and you're trying to grab that middle. And so it's painful to watch these guys who know, look, there's a lot of stuff the president's doing I don't agree with, but I can't be so overtly political that I lose my base because the Democrats may go, oh, you're a great guy, still not voting for you. So I put Drew on the spot on Medicare for All, and to be uh, bipartisan in my tough questions, uh, Barry... Repeal and replace um, was was uh, attempted multiple times. If the Senate majority is, in fact, expanded and let's say the Republicans find a way to hang on to the House, uh, we uh, saw John McCain, rest his soul, famously give the thumbs down on the floor of the Senate. uh, And it was that close. What can we expect for repeal and replace? Uh, It's a dead issue. I mean, there, there, there may be some of our far right side will keep, you know, thumping away at it. But, but if we hold the House, what 
what the president's team has been doing through directive and regulatory side uh, will continue. Some stuff will be challenged in court and struck down, but some stuff will be held. And you'll continue with this kind of patchwork. You know, my former boss, Speaker Boehner, um, once he was free to speak his mind, you know, often in interviews would be like, Jesus, there's no way in hell that's ever going to pass. <laughs> you know? And it's true. It's just not because, you know, being against something seems like it's easy. But when you're talking about health care or you're talking about education, people want to know, okay, well, so what are you for? And the idea of, well, I'm going to take this all away and then I'm going to replace it with something that will supposedly be better, that's a hard hill. And the president is not there anymore. He's gone. He has given Alex A's our full reign. Go do whatever you think is best. I'm done with this issue. So uh, we are going to have an audience poll here momentarily, and you will all get the opportunity to weigh in on these very issues uh, in terms of your thoughts, opinions, as well as what you prognosticate uh, as likely to happen. Uh, I do want to get Mr. Berger in the game. Uh, he was right in the middle hip deep in actual policy making, not politics, of course not politics, no. on the Hill with tax reform. Uh, and we saw in California an effort to levy a 17% tax on carried interest. So uh, carried interest survived tax reform. You know, it was left alone through you know, a series of compromises uh, and arm twisting and the like. Sellouts. <laughs> the uh, the California initiative would have taxed carried interest at 17 percent in order to fund education. So a lot of states are strapped for cash and they see the federal government uh, perhaps in, in some degree of gridlock on issues that matter to them. Uh, the, this firm was involved in that carried interest fight in California. Uh, what do you think in terms of states taking up the charge and trying to tax carried interest? Well, on. And again, we go back to remember what happened with carried interest. Even before tax reform, there were a number of, of bills that were very serious about taxing carried interest at ordinary rates. This is the essentially the 20 percent promote typically that uh, funds get if, if deals go well uh, and it's taxes capital gains. It has not died in Congress yet either. When you talk about things that if that comes over, I know you have the various things on there. One of those is carried interest. The reform purportedly taxes carried interest. You now have to hold your investment for three years. Uh, that for some is a problem, but for most is not. So people felt that the carried interest reform is is more or less status quo. All you have to do is hold for three years. Some states got upset about that, in California in particular. Uh, and not necessarily because they were upset about how carried interest was treated. It was more a reaction to corporate tax breaks. And we're going to tax that, which is interesting because it isn't even the individual rates. California's law would have resulted in tax rates of upwards of 70%. Um, and so there was a short and intense period of education uh, and also realizing that many of the businesses that are susceptible to carried interest also are pretty easy to pack up and move to Nevada. 
Um, and it became clear that it was, was an issue. But it's going to continue to be a fight. Uh, a lot of other states uh, have, have looked at it. Um, I think that the, the rationale is different. But generally, the, the defense for it is these are, for the most part, highly mobile jobs and businesses that can lo- locate anywhere. It's not necessarily the manufacturing plant that you cannot pick up and leave. So I think it's going to be a continued struggle. It's going to be uh, anything that's a source of revenue is always a target. Uh, it's one that we're still keeping an eye on. Uh, but I think it's going to be an issue not only at the state levels, but it will continue to uh, raise itself as an issue at the federal level. On well, politically, let me, let me just say one thing about that, because for everybody in the room, if you've not been through these kind of tax fights, one thing that both the Democrats and the Republicans on the Hill are going to start pounding on is the size of the deficit. And so as the Democrats come up with their budget plans, the Republicans come up with theirs, you've got to find pay-fors. And even though you know it's never going to happen, what ends up is that as soon as some part of the code gets in somebody's pay-for bill, we call Greg, explain this, because we're going to have a half dozen clients coming to us. Oh, my God, is this for real? Is this going to happen? So, so get prepared for the next two years, whether there's a tax bill part two or a corrections bill. These issues are going to get litigated in a public way a lot. And in the uh, populist era that we live in, as has been noted by our panelists, uh, pitting education and little boys and girls with apples for their teachers and their knapsacks with their books against private equity is a populist message that we can expect to hear again and again. And we're forecasting multiple states, uh, potentially New York State, you know, taking up the same Charge. So although tax reform occurred at the federal level in December and uh, theoretically made America great again, uh, there's quite a bit of rumbling out there in the heartland and from state to state. I want to pivot and make sure that we get to our audience poll, which is always a highlight of the evening. Um, we've got a couple of issues that will just run down uh, in two-minute offense fashion. So technology companies, we had uh, Apple CEO Tim Cook recently state that tech companies claiming data collection makes their services better is a, quote, bunch of bunk. Uh, Can greater congressional or regulatory scrutiny of tech and privacy be far away? Uh, And quick answers from the panel. Greater scrutiny is is here. Uh, Greater regulation, I don't know. The place to look, the place where all the tech issues converge, is antitrust and competition. And the question is whether federal regulators take a different view. It's hard to look at, for example, an Amazon that's in so many businesses. Um, It's hard to look at them in terms of traditional, say, vertical integration. They're really not that integrated vertically. They're incredibly broadly spread out horizontally. So, so, So if we see regulators starting to redefine what antitrust means, or legislators thinking about changing you know, the Sherman Act, that will affect all of these companies because you can use that as a hammer to hit them on anything you're unhappy with as a practical matter. Data collection practices, anything. You threaten to stop them from making acquisitions or from selling themselves or selling parts of the company, that affects their share price profoundly. 
So, so that's the tool by which they would be regulated, I believe. Not regulations, or not significantly, by specific data collection-type regulations. Congress can't keep up. Yeah, I, and th- this is one of those rare instances where the right and the left converge at the edges. Uh, and, and what I find fascinating about this, I, I'm a Luddite, and I hate all of the tech guys, but... Um, <laughs> What got Congress going on this was not Target or Equifax or Nordstrom or any of those data leaks. It was when all of a the sudden their primacy of controlling message in elections all of a sudden was out of their grasp. And politicians will do that. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Somebody ought to look at this. This isn't right. So I think you're going to see a lot of oversight on this. You're going to see a lot of people pounding on this. You know, we saw, you know, today this movement by shareholders to oust Zuckerberg from his company. This is not going to go away. And the thing that's fascinating to watch is how the traditional lines in the tech community are blurring. So that nobody wants to be in the same boat as the Google guys or the Facebook guys right now. Everybody's gunning for Jeff and Amazon. They just don't know how to fire off yet. And the old hands that really know all this stuff, which are the carriers, think of the AT&T and the Verizons and the Comcast guys, they're licking their chops because they're like, oh, yeah, come get in the regulatory pool. We'll eat your lunch. So this is going to be a fun battle to watch. So to amplify that point, we saw with the ACA uh, any number of mandates imposed, and one of the trends that emerged from that was uh, the smaller fish couldn't keep up with compliance. The compliance cost was just daunting, and so that accelerated merger activity. So one of our conversations here this evening is what's likely intended or unintended consequences from greater regulatory oversight, what may be that, you know, to Barry's point, uh, the big fish who've already figured out how to comply with heavy regulation, they may thrive and acquire the smaller fish, TBD. Uh, so real quick, GDPR, global data privacy regulation, already implemented in Europe. Uh, folks who've traveled abroad have commented on how uh, onerous that's been, uh, even just during their touring. Uh, is GDPR coming to our shores? Uh, quick answers. What I'm told is that uh, for, the, for the biggest companies, even if they didn't want those regulations initially, um, they're often involved in the EU in negotiating the regulations. And you would find, if you look closely enough, that the regulations work with software they've already designed, certainly true in the copyright area. So, so they find they can comply, and these regulations become barriers to entry for the small and, and medium-sized companies, as you suggested. So, so uh, I'll let Barry has a little more insight into this than me, but we do represent one of the medium-sized companies. And, and one of their biggest issues is the big guys wind up collaborating on these rules. They're so, you know, YouTube software works with the new European copyright rules. They didn't have to modify anything. We have to modify everything. Uh, and it's a serious barrier to entry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. So continuing our two-minute offense, uh, banking and Dodd-Frank, um, the, the much uh, ballyhooed repeal of Dodd-Frank hasn't occurred, uh, but there has been a rollback from you know, my humble perspective, mostly with respect to smaller banks and institutions. Uh, thoughts on the climate for banking and Dodd-Frank? So I, I just, in some ways, this is like ACA, where 
the Obama administration and a Democratic Congress pass these things and recognize that they'll tell you, you know, we got some stuff wrong, but we don't want to run a bill to correct it because then the whole thing opens back up. So on on Dodd-Frank, you know, you've actually seen some bipartisan progress this time where people have said, yeah, we got that one wrong. We need to fix this. And what Drew said earlier about about the wannabe future chairman, Maxine, um, she's very transactional about this stuff. And so I would not be surprised if, if in a Democratic House they move something and a Republican Senate says, yeah, we can live with this and you could see more going forward on the banking side. I couldn't tell you what those pieces are, but I can see the politics of this. I think I, I, I agree with Barry's analysis. One thing I would add is, um, you know, I pray that we don't have a recession, but in terms of the variables over the next couple of years, I mean, recessions come eventually. I think Congress will be quick to try and throw together some kind of legislation. It might not actually do anything, have any corrective effect. It's almost impossible for Congress to, to do anything about a recession, but they will want to get ahead of it or not too far behind it. If constituents are going to start losing homes and it feels like the last big financial crisis, they're going to feel like they have to pass something. So we have a few bankers in the room. Uh, there you have those pearls of wisdom. Uh, moving right along in our hurry-up offense to antitrust. Uh, spoke with an expert uh, in Washington uh, earlier this week, and uh, the take on that was uh, unpredictable, uh, but for different reasons than we might think. So, you know, my perception, well, you know, the big boss in the Oval is tweeting about different mergers. You know, is he putting his nose under the tent and directing, you know, personal vendettas? And apparently not. You know, after the AT&T merger, there were some allegations of, uh, the White House getting overly involved in that. White House has been somewhat hands-off, uh, but nonetheless, the antitrust regulators, and I know many of us you know, follow uh, our own deals, deals of others that affect our companies, whether or not they get approved uh, in terms of merger scrutiny, uh, it's been uneven. Uh, I think one theme that's emerged is uh, trying to roll back old consent decrees in sort of the spirit of deregulation. Uh, and there's a little bit of a uh, disfavored take on behavioral remedies, so uh, trying to resolve an antitrust concern with a, a thou shalt do this and not do that post-merger. Uh, any thoughts on antitrust going forward? When, uh, when Franken was uh, elected to the Senate, he was placed on the Judiciary Committee, and, and I went to the mat to get him on the Antitrust Subcommittee, which the Senate has. The House doesn't um, have one. And, and a big part of the reason is, in an era where, where, as Barry suggested, the deficit is so large, it's hard to find money for programs. Antitrust is the one tool that you have, I think, to really change chunks of society without actually spending money. So I think Democrats, obviously Democrats aren't running the show now, but Democrats, I think, will be tempted to make greater and greater use of antitrust tools or to build new antitrust tools. I can't give you a prediction about what's going to happen, you know, on a regular, in, in the regulatory front for the next year or two. But uh, the interesting side of this is that the... the um I rarely 
pretend to talk on the Democratic side, but the, their view of antitrust is behavioral modification, what, what, what Mike kind of alluded to. On the Republican side, generally, we're okay with big companies doing things. The thing to remember about the next two years going forward, one, is if the attorney general stays in office, he has always been anti-big, just as a philosophy. He does not view big corporations as being great American stalwarts. And frankly, the president back when he was just a real estate dude and hawking books, was the same way. So there's there's a political view at the top that we don't like big. That doesn't necessarily mean we're going to just go hell-bent on breakups, but I think you're going to see places where you go, huh, well, that's kind of unusual. I wouldn't have expected that, but they're going to go forward with it. You know, Just think about the, you know, justice appealing the AT&T decision and how silly most people thought that was. But these guys aren't going to give up a fight when they think they're right on those things. All right. So uh, this is the power to the people portion of the agenda. Uh, And this is actually pretty uh, user friendly. So grab your phone and text to the phone number on your screen, 747-444. Three five four eight Brownstein. Just text the word Brownstein, and you will be into the polls and ready for action. Uh, and while you guys do that, uh, I'll just note uh, along the lines of power to the people, uh, the sheer volume of questions on the Colorado ballot is astronomical. And in trying to uh, teach my 11-year-old son, 7-year-old daughter, pretty ambitious about democracy in action, explaining these different questions and the nuances to them, But to the point of the panel on infrastructure and everyone agreeing, yeah, this really has to happen. Bridges are crumbling. Who's going to pay? We have 109 and 110 here in Colorado on the ballot. So this isn't a state-level focused event, but um, that's an example of states sort of saying, hey, you know, the feds aren't going to do it. We've got to get after it. Another state vote that's going to be absolutely crucial and over $100 million dollars Uh, has been spent to date opposing a cap on dialysis profits in the state of California. Um, The voters are going to get to vote on whether they cap dialysis profits at 15 percent. That is a a fascinating, fascinating campaign. We'll see where that one goes. So now you guys get to vote. Our first question of the evening. This is pretty basic. Just lay some groundwork. Uh, Everybody throw your vote in and uh, we'll see what kind of audience we've got here tonight. And don't worry, the Chicoms are not in this at all. Your votes count. Uh, So many of you are repeat guests that I didn't say my usual uh, comment of uh, none of this data is retained and we're not going to send you cookies or anything like that. So your privacy, uh, this is a GDPR compliant poll. I'd like to point out the Democrats were much quicker and be able to utilize the technology. Those votes came in. They voted early. I heard the hissing uh, from the six Republicans in the audience. So uh, we're going we're gonna to keep the polls open a moment longer. And 
I think that um, we're going to call it for the D's. It looks like uh, polls are open another moment. 14 D's, six Republicans, six unaffiliated, uh, one Libertarian. All right. So question two, the 2016 election, how did you vote? Again, uh, this is a private poll. Uh, we'll see who we have in the House, and that will color our interpretation of the questions to come. I love that everyone mastered the technology on the first try. You know, we, we usually have to provide a little support to a few folks. Well done, audience. Uh, we're at five Trump voters, 16 Hillary voters, four other, uh, and three folks who did not vote. I will avoid the lecture for those three people. <laughs> Did economic issues impact your vote? Uh, A, some, B, significantly, C, not at all. Panelists, you can vote. You know, I never disenfranchise you guys. All right, looks like uh, economic issues impacted uh, folks. Some, 10 people, significantly 12. <laughs> Not at all five people. There are five people in this room who are so independently wealthy, they're not worried. That's awesome. Congrats to you five. The stock market continues to reach new highs overall with a drop last week. You'll note I keep these slides up to date. Uh, President Trump deserves, A, all the credit. Markets have reacted positively to his agenda, including tax reform. B, some credit. Uh, just pushing back against stifling government regulation and red tape helps businesses uh, see none of the credit. President Obama laid the groundwork and markets are thriving in spite of Trump. And uh, this is a very unscientific poll. Any true pollsters would probably fire me in a minute, but we're just here to have fun. Polls are about to close. The votes are in and... Uh, one person believes Trump gets all the credit. Uh, we've got 16 people who will give Trump some credit. Uh, nine people deny Trump an ounce of credit. Uh, President Obama laid the groundwork. So uh, we're, we're having fun now. Okay, lowering corporate tax rates as part of tax reform. A, likely prompted economic activity. And, and Greg, we'll let you, you know, speak up on this since you're not voting. Okay. Uh, you're one of those three non-voters in the last presidential election. Perhaps prompted economic activity, but at least eliminated quirks in the tax code. Because, you know, nobody else in the world taxes corporations at such a high rate as it once was. Uh, C gave a windfall to corporate shareholders. Answer D is a uh, trick answer, both A and C. So everybody think long and hard about that one. Okay, so without, without addressing the conclusions here, uh, one of the issues that will be up for discussion when people are looking for revenue raisers is an increase in the corporate tax rate. Uh, particularly, one of the issues out there was, was rolling back SALT, the limitations on state and local deductions, which was a very, very ex – uh, raised a lot of money. If you roll that back, it's going to cost a lot of money. I'd say no matter who wins the – presidential election in 2020, there may be a movement of, to increase tax rates to pay for some of these other issues. Corporate tax rates. Can I, can I say a few words about SALT, because it's my favorite uh, sleeper subject? The, the tax, Republican tax bill 
capped the deduction for state and local taxes. Um, that takes a whack at the Democrats. It takes a whack at blue states. I looked at uh, just Motley Fool, the top 10 state and local tax bur- uh, states by tax burden. They're all blue states. If you look at the electoral votes from those 10 top state and local tax states, the ones most affected by this provision, 146, 145 electoral votes. I will make you guess the breakdown. Hillary got 144. Donald Trump got one. Their Senate delegation is one Republican and 19 Democrats. But if you look at the same 10 states, the high, those high tax states, t- blue states, tend to be large, which means they have a lot of Democratic uh, representation, but they have a lot of Republicans, incidentally, too. Um, there are 21 House seats, Republican-controlled, that are, are lean D or R or toss-up just from those 10 states. It will only take 23 to flip the House. So you can see how voters upset about that cap, state and local deduction, um, could be the ones who actually dictate control of the House. I would note that 12 Republicans voted against the tax bill. 11 of them were from California, New York, and New Jersey, all top 10 state and local tax states. So I think that is a stealth issue for voters. So our, our maps, our blue states and red states, we're now getting down to the point where we, we're, salt, we've got Chuck, Chuck Todd, yes, <laughs> looking at blue uh, exactly salt right. and red salt. Uh, so our vote on this one broke down with nine folks saying prompted economic activity, uh, another nine thinking it was a windfall to corporate shareholders. Uh, eight people said both those two. One true believer felt that we eliminated quirks in the tax code. Congratulations, Greg. So moving right along. <laughs> Infrastructure upgrades in the United States are in dire need, and I would pay higher taxes to fund them. Uh, and if you're voting A, you, you should be voting for 109 or 110 here in Colorado. Take your pick of which. Uh, B, are in dire need, but I would not pay higher taxes to fund them. Uh, that's, that's somewhat what the folks with 109 are selling. Fix our damn roads, but let's print money to do it and issue debt, uh, not raise taxes. So to be more accurate about that. Uh, C, would spur on enough economic growth to pay for themselves. Uh, D, are just more pork barrel spending. And polls are open. Looks like uh, we've got 21 people and counting willing to pay higher taxes to fund infrastructure. So, uh, panelists, in light of that, that's probably our most resounding vote of the night. Uh, in light of the many Americans, at least in this room, willing to pay more taxes to fund infrastructure, percent chance that actually happens. This kind of reminds me of of when you go, oh, my God, I think climate change is like the most important issue ever. Nobody votes on it. <laughs> Infrastructure is kind of the same way, unless you're a road builder or a mayor. Uh, so nice, but irrelevant. <laughs> Drew, any chance? Um, you know, I dream about tax increases, but, but um, I dream about the gas tax going up. But uh, I, don't see it, I don't see it happening. Everybody wants infrastructure, but not everybody wants to pay for it, or everybody wants somebody else to pay for it. So. No, nobody wants to have to take the vote to pay for it. Greg? Yeah. Exactly. I, I think more likely this may depend upon, again, who's on, in office, but remember, there's, there's raising taxes to pay for it and have it be government programs, or there are combination of tax credits and and public-private partnerships, more likely it'll go that way. 
Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Public-private partnerships for infrastructure. And, All I, right. and, and let me just, just one last thing on this, because when, when Boehner was still Speaker, he made this um, Don Quixote effort to try to do uh, an energy bill and an infrastructure bill and marry them together. Part of the problem about raising gas taxes to pay for infrastructure is everybody in the business knows that, that that's a fool's errand. As long as you keep pushing for electric cars and the, you push for higher you know, mile per gallon and energy efficiency, it, you're killing yourself. And so you eventually get to 100% tax, and you still don't have enough to pay for the infrastructure. So actually really smart policy people are trying to find a way to fund infrastructure without a gas tax. The easy fix is gas tax, but everybody knows that that's a short-term fix. So uh, public-private partnerships, PPPs, the key to infrastructure. Everyone's nodding their head. All right, we have our first consensus of the night among the panelists. Write that down. Cutting red tape has spurred on economic activity. Broadly scaling back regulations in sectors from energy to real estate development will ensure that the United States is open for business. Agree strongly the government should not be getting in the way of business. Uh, B, agree, but relaxed rules should only be allowed on a case-by-case basis. C, regulations are necessary to preserve important priorities such as the environment. These laws exist for good reason, and the existing regulatory process should be followed. And it looks like the silent majority has voted uh, strongly, 14 people saying agree, but relaxed rules should only be allowed on a case-by-case basis. Uh, another, Another consensus here this evening. Efforts to tax carried interest at the state level in the United States, like California Assembly Bill 2731, A, are worthwhile to fund important government priorities like education, healthcare, infrastructure, and others. B, are important to achieve greater fairness in how private equity entrepreneurs and developers are taxed. C, would harm private equity entrepreneurs and developers and could dampen economic growth. got a lot of abstentions come on folks i can't declare a consensus just yet so let me just raise one issue here on the california bill what's interesting is carried interest that the the criticism of carried interest is a tax at capital gain rates what should be taxed at ordinary rates one point california does not have separate capital gains and ordinary income rates carried interest in California today is taxed at ordinary rates because there is no capital gains rates. The bill just added more to that. So at the state level, it's not necessarily a question of is the character of the gain fair? It's do we just need to tax another source of revenue? Well, it is California. (laughs) So uh, we have 15 people who fear that uh, taxation of carried interest would harm private equity entrepreneurs, developers, and could dampen economic growth. Uh, With 15 votes, we're going to declare that a consensus. Of the proposals to reform health care in the United States, in the coming years, we will likely see A, implementation of Republican plans for repeal and replace. B, implementation of Democratic plans for Medicare for all. C, neither, only modest tweaks to the Affordable Care Act. D, none of the above. 
healthcare gridlock will continue. Polls are open. And we've got uh, our second strongest consensus of the evening that we will only see modest tweaks to the Affordable Care Act uh, 19 votes. So um, this audience sees through all the political rhetoric of Medicare for all and repeal and replace. Uh, well done. But I think we'll still continue to hear all that rhetoric on the campaign trail. Absolutely. So next item, uh, antitrust rules should be relaxed for mergers, partnerships, and consolidation. Agree strongly. Consolidation is necessary to drive efficiencies. Government shouldn't be getting in the way of business. Agree, but relaxed rules for consolidation should only be allowed on a case-by-case basis. Uh, C, are necessary to contain monopolies. Antitrust laws exist for good reason, and efficiencies can be obtained through other means. And we've got a, a battle uh, neck and neck between uh, antitrust laws existing for good reason, contain monopolies, uh, and relaxed rules case-by-case basis. Uh, only two people think open season for mergers. So we're, we're going to call this about a tie between case-by-case and contain monopolies. Technology companies should be required to cooperate with national security requirements and investigation requests. A. Agree. Proprietary technologies does not justify failure to cooperate with criminal investigations. B. Disagree. Tech companies are not part of law enforcement and should not be forced to hand over access to their proprietary technology. And I'm afraid the uh, tech companies, were they here this evening, would be uh, deeply disappointed to know that 18 of you are ready to open up their proprietary technology to law enforcement. Uh, 18 and growing, so we'll call that a consensus. Social media companies should be required to have some accountability for the content posted on their pages. A, disagree. Social media is just like the town square and postings are free speech. B, agree. Social media's approach has been far too hands-off they bear some responsibility for postings on their pages, just like print media would. See, I would have, I would have done C. Social media's approach is far too manipulative mm-hmm. rather than hands-off. Mm-hmm. We'll let Barry write the poll next time. <laughs> More sinister. Uh, We do have a consensus, 20 folks saying they agree social media's approach has been far too hands-off and they bear responsibility. Last question of the evening. Uh, The jury will speak. Overall, President Trump is A, on pace and making America great again. B, perhaps stepping on some toes in the name of needed reforms. C, moving way too fast and exceeding his mandate. D, just plain dangerous. I just want to know, we don't have to know who, who's who, but I'm just wondering if, um, if, if any of the, either of the two people who answered A are the ones who keep posting those notes on my Facebook page after I go on Fox News. <laughs> are, you, are you here? Are you the one tweeting about me? Because someone's sending out some 
Well, message is consistent with the answer. To they're they're going to send you when when them. you get a package after this program. You know, shake it very carefully. Right, right, right. The Make America Great hat inside may have something in it. I'm the first person at Brownstein to have his own food taster, so I'm staying I'm staying vigilant. So uh, we do have a consensus here. Seventeen folks saying uh, President Trump is just plain dangerous. But, you know, maybe just maybe he's crazy like a fox. Mm-hmm. You know, the South Koreans did get badgered into some trade concessions. So just to try and be even handed here as the moderator. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is our last audience polling question of the evening. Uh, thanks a lot, everybody. Really appreciate you being here. Thank okay. you. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farbershreck podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.